Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Genesis Church, and it's my privilege to welcome you this morning. And I want to give a special welcome to those of you who maybe have uh, spent the entire summer on vacation. Uh, maybe you were at the lake, maybe you were playing sports, whatever you were doing, and this is your first Sunday or second Sunday back. Uh, thanks. Welcome back. We're glad to have you back here today. Uh, I know for many of us, getting away in the summer is one of those really fun things that we get to do with the family. And um, for my family, my kids are both college age now, 18 and 20 years old, and it's a little tougher for us to get away because, one, they all have different interests than we have, and uh, two, we all have different schedules, and so I was very fortunate we were able to get away uh, for a week in June. We went to Minnesota and Wisconsin to try to escape the summer heat, and it was great, and I hope you had great vacations if you were gone somewhere, but there's something that all of our vacations have in common. Every time we go, we play this game and it's called, What Are We Doing For Dinner? And uh, maybe you've played this game. If you haven't, maybe next time you're on vacation, try it. Here's the way it works. Uh, somebody, usually around 4.30 or 5, when we start to get hungry, says, hey, guys, what are you thinking about for dinner? And then everybody else says, that's it. That's kind of how the game goes, right? Uh, they say nothing. They just stare at you because they expect you to make the decision. I wonder if any of you have played this game before. Have you ever played this game? Raise your hands up there. Yeah, okay, so I'm not alone. If you haven't, it really isn't fun. It's very frustrating. It's, uh, it's really hard. But somebody, the truth is somebody has to decide, right? Somebody has to be the leader. There's all these little moments in our lives, and that one's kind of funny, but some of them are kind of serious, where somebody's got to be the leader. And, and if you're the leader, if you're the one that everybody's looking to for answers, if you're the one that everybody looks to to set the tone, uh, you're going to have more than your fair share of opportunities to make decisions, and unfortunately, that means you'll have more than your fair share of opportunities to disappoint someone, right? Uh, but so how do you lead well? And in those uh, moments when you're not the leader, how do you spot a great leader? I mean, the truth is almost every one of us in the room has some opportunity at some place in our life to lead something, right? Almost all of us, whether you're a student or a kid or an adult, a grandparent, you've got some place in your life, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at school, maybe it's on a team, maybe it's somewhere else where you get to be the leader. You're the one that people are looking to for direction, uh, for decisions. You're the one that's setting the tone. You're the one that's setting the course. Uh, and so I have a question for you today. What do you do when you look around and you see that you are the leader? What do you do when you're the only one who everybody is looking to for guidance? Well, if you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to turn this morning to John chapter 13. Today, we're continuing in our year-long study through the Gospel of John that we're calling Grow. As many of you know, we started this series uh, back in January. We started reading through the Gospel of John together. And if you haven't been with us, I want you to know we've got a reading plan for you at the Info Hub. We've got a journal out there for you, too. You can pick this up on your way out. And uh, we've got a plan through the end of November that's on the back of that, so you can be reading along with us. And... Uh, we covered John 1 through 12 in January through May, then we took a break for the summer, and now just this last week, we've picked it back up again at the end of John 12. But if you want to recap or you want to hear past messages, you can do that in a couple ways. One, you can download the Genesis Church app. All of our podcasts for the last, I think, 10 years are there on the Genesis Church app. Uh, you can find our podcast at uh, Apple Podcasts or on the Google Play Store, or you can follow us on YouTube. If you just search Genesis Church, we're usually the first or the second one to come up there, and you can watch uh, messages for the past, I don't know how long, year or so that are out there on YouTube, so you can find them there. Well, last week in John 12, 
Paul talked about how Jesus predicted his own death. He said this in John 12, 23. He said, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you got to know that when his disciples heard that word glorified, they weren't thinking death. They were thinking of Jesus leading them into war, most likely, into war with Rome, that he was going to march through the streets of Jerusalem, that they were going to uh, take the city by force, that this new kingdom was coming, and it was going to be great, and the disciples would have uh, some say-so in everything, and the Jews would finally be freed from under the oppression of Rome, and that they would carry Jesus on their shoulders through the city of Jerusalem to this newly established throne. But what they surely didn't expect was within the week he would be dead. See, from our earthly perspective, uh, glorification and crucifixion are kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Because when we think of somebody being glorified, we think of them being lifted up, being exalted, and that would come for Jesus, but first he had to go down. He had to be first through humbling himself and then through his own humiliation and eventually uh, through his own gruesome death on a cross. Uh, But Jesus' process of glorification takes this very unexpected turn when he's crucified. And and we'll talk about all that in a few weeks. We're going to talk about his capture, his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. We'll we'll get to that in a few weeks as we make our way through the book of John. But first, uh, we're in Jerusalem for today. And so before we dig into our scripture, I just want to pray that the Lord would reveal what he'd want us to see in this scripture. Would you pray along with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful and believe that you've got something for each and every one of us in this room today. So here in John 13, as we hang out with our disciple, with uh, Jesus' disciples in the Last Supper, uh, would you please guide our thoughts, help us to see what you want us to see in this story, and uh, Lord, speak to us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 13, 1, that's where we're going to start. <clears throat> says this, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And I'm going to stop right there for a minute because verse 1 gives us this really important timestamp, which is going to help describe the events that happen in John chapter 13. It helps us realize why we're here in Jerusalem in this moment, why the disciples are there, why Jesus has come to town, and what's happening uh, in these events we're about to look at. So G- he tells us that it was just before Passover. Now, we'll discuss that in much greater detail next week. We're going to talk about the Passover meal, but that detail helps us to know that this meal they're getting ready to sit down to isn't just an ordinary family dinner, that they're sitting down to a ceremonial dinner called the Passover Seder, and uh, it's a very traditional meal. It takes place at the very beginning of the Jewish holiday of Passover, and the scripture says that Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In other words, he understood now at this point in his life, near the end of his life, that his time had come to die and then be raised from the dead, that this time was very close. But then he says this at the end, says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think this is just a really special phrase that Jesus used here for the few men and women who were gathered there that night, that Jesus called them his own. Have you ever noticed that? Have you thought about that? That they weren't just his students or his minions or his work buddies. They were his own. In fact, in John 15, he's going to tell them, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. 
And think about this. He had chosen them specifically over the last three and a half or three and three quarter years. They had spent a lot of time together. Jesus was very intentional with spending time with his disciples. He had taught them, he said, everything that came from the Father, and soon he would die to rescue them from their sins. And then John ends this verse by simply saying, he loved them to the end. I think it's really important for us to remember that John was one of these first disciples. He was in the room at that moment, but he was one of Jesus's first disciples. He was in the starting five, if you think of it that way. Uh, John had been following another leader, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, and he runs into Jesus down on the Jordan River around Jericho uh, after Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist. And Jesus gives John the apostle, uh, the, the author of this gospel, this very specific challenge. He says, follow me. And John makes this decision to leave John the Baptist and to start following Jesus. And he spends the next three and a half years following him around everywhere. Uh, and uh, I can't help but picture John as he's writing these words down, thinking back through this last three and a half years of time with Jesus and tearing up as he writes down these words that Jesus loved him to the end. And he wrote them down so that you and I could somehow understand the deep sense of love that Jesus expressed to John and his friends. And I think that's one thing that, before we go any further, you've really got to understand, is that Jesus loves me and he loves you in the same way that he loved these friends that were gathered together in this Last Supper. That if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to know that Jesus has called you, that he has a plan for you, and that he loves you. And maybe that's the whole reason you're here today, is to hear that. So what does it mean that he loved them to the end? Well, we'll get there, but let's keep reading, okay? Verse 2 says this. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, at first, this may seem like a weird detail to the overall story, right? That uh, Jesus and all his disciples are in the room, but Satan's there too. But it's really important. Uh, just think about this for a moment. John wasn't just telling us that Jesus was sitting down for this final meal with the people he loved most, but he was reminding us that there was a very powerful spiritual battle unfolding in this room, playing out in the heavenly realms that nobody else was aware of. And probably everybody in the room can relate to this because you know what it's like to sit down to Thanksgiving dinner with your family, right? <laughs> Except then you're not dealing with a, an open spiritual battle with the devil. You're just dealing with your uncle who always wants to talk politics. Uh, a little bit of a difference, but in, this, in all seriousness, Jesus is dealing with this very real spiritual battle here. Satan is present and active in Jesus's final hours. And that might sound scary or make us feel uneasy, and rightly so. But in verse 3, John quickly reminds us who's in control. Verse 3 says this, that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. Now, John seems very perceptive in this moment. If you read these, just these first three verses, he's looking around the room and he's telling us what's going on. He says, Satan had already entered Judas and Jesus knew that uh, the Father had put all things under his power and that he was returning to God. But remember that John was probably the youngest of the disciples, and he was likely a teenager or in his early 20s at the oldest in this moment. And I don't know in this very moment that John looked around and saw all of this spiritual warfare happening, but he's writing this gospel probably 50 or 60 years later with the benefit of hindsight. John's 
probably in his 80s when he wrote the Gospel of John. He's now an elder statesman in the church. He's the only disciple of the original 12 that's still alive to tell the story at this time. And in hindsight, he wants his readers to hear, hey, just so you know, Satan was at work at the background, but trying to take Jesus down, but Jesus knew the Father had put all things, all things under his power, which includes Satan. Pretty fascinating, huh? I promise that next week we're going to dive deeper into the spiritual battle that's taking place behind the scenes. But for now, here is Jesus, the leader in this role where everyone's looking to him for direction, and he is going to set the tone. They're going to look to him for what to do. And here's what he's going to do. Uh, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had all the authority in the world, Jesus did, in this moment, and that he had come from God, and that he's returning to God. Let's go to verse 4, and it says this, So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus looks around and sees all these guys at the table and realizes that something got left out. They're all reclining, okay? We need to understand this. There are no chairs here the way that People would uh, eat most meals at that time, but especially in a ceremonial time like the Passover Seder, is they would be at a very low table, and they would be lying, reclined, probably on their elbow, propped up or propped up on a pillow, and then their feet stretched out uh, at the head of the person next to them. Sounds tempting, right? Very appetizing to have a place to eat your meal. All right, now let's think about this too. Uh, well, so it was a sign of respect to have your guest's feet washed. It was a ceremony, it had a ceremonial purpose to it in the meal, but also a hygienic purpose uh, because you didn't want people's dirty feet in your face. Now remember, everybody's wearing sandals all the time. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that wore sandals all summer long. Maybe you got a nice little sandal tan, you got a good Chaco tan going on there. You look down at your feet and you see the big white strap across the middle of your foot. Uh, I don't have that, but I do have the runner's watch tan. If I take my watch off, I would blind you with the white that's under this watch right here. Uh, I won't do that for your benefit. But think about that sandal tan, right? You look down at your feet, you see the big white stripe, and then you see all the brown around it. Now imagine instead of sun, that brown is dirt from the road you walk down. It's dirt because you're always wearing your sandals and you're walking down these dusty roads and there's dirt that's, uh, that's being kicked up and spread everywhere and it's landing on your feet and you're sharing the roads with pack animals who are indiscriminate about where they leave their droppings and you try your best to avoid them but every once in a while you'll step in a pile and you'll go, oh crap. <laughs> and it's the Middle East and it's, hot. And so you're sweating all the time. And so these guys' feet were all covered in a congealed mess of dirt and sweat and poo. Foot washing was a disgusting job, and it was usually reserved for the lowest servant in the house. But Jesus, the leader, the one that everybody's looking to for direction, the most powerful man in the room, the most powerful man in the world, God had put all authority on him. He didn't let that stop him. Look again at what John writes. He says he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. There's like these bullet points, these short, quick statements. It's like an eyewitness account of someone who was there in the room. And it seems to indicate 
that everybody was in awe of what was happening. I mean, think about this. How would you describe something in this moment? It's like, you wouldn't believe it. He was there. He took off his clothes. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water in a basin. He started washing our feet. I mean, it's like, right, these little short statements say, nobody could believe what was happening in this moment. And I think this is the reason that John wrote this down, uh, that he remembered the words of Jesus, that he remembered the actions some 50 or 60 years after they were spoken. The reason that he captured this scene so completely was that it was totally unexpected. Something they were going to remember. Jesus loved them to the end, and one of the ways he loved them was by serving them, but also by giving them this memory of serving that in just a few days when Jesus is dead, it's going to be burned into their collective consciousness forever. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, at first glance, it's easy for us to assume that Peter was being difficult or dramatic. He kind of has a reputation for that because that's the way it reads. But let's stop for a moment and put ourselves in his shoes, okay? Can you just imagine if Jesus showed up for dinner at your house tonight and insisted on washing your feet before you ate. But forget about Jesus. Just imagine anybody showed up for dinner at your house and uh, they put a towel around their waist and get down on one knee and you're like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? Like, stand up. Like, leave your shoes on. It's fine. Whatever. Right? It's awkward. It's weird. I mean, it's no secret that feet are weird anyway and pretty gross, right? I mean, the thought of somebody accidentally touching your foot is a little bit taboo. And to think that somebody is going to intentionally come into your home and wash your feet is really weird. So maybe it helps us to think of it like this. Imagine somebody that you respect a great deal. And then what's a job that you would never, ever want them to do for you? And that's what's happening in this moment. The, the one I always think about, I cannot read this story without thinking of my friend, Jenny Mumaw. When, uh, Paul, who's our lead pastor, Paul Mumal, when he invited me to come on staff 11 years ago or so, we sold our house and we bought a house in Noblesville and we were moving to town and uh, Jenny showed up on moving day at our house with a toilet brush in her hand. And she went around in our newly purchased house and cleaned all of our toilets. And uh, what a servant. And it made an impression on me because I still remember that. I still tell that story. And it made an impression on my wife so much so that, do you know what my wife does when we help any of our friends move? She brings her toilet brush to the house and cleans all their toilets for them. She was so moved by that show of serving. And what we see in this story is that Jesus is teaching his disciples an important principle, but he's teaching it by modeling it for them. And part of his teaching is to turn every social norm upside down by doing the job that is reserved for the lowest of the low in order to share this tender moment of intimacy with his friends, the people that he loved the most. That's what's happening in this moment. We'll go on. Verse 12 says this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. And one of the things that's interesting to point out, I've highlighted in this verse, is that Jesus twice reminds them of the relationship they have. He says, I am your teacher and Lord. I am your Lord and teacher. 
and I have washed your feet. And he acknowledges that he's their leader. And then he gives them instructions of what they should do. Now that I have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. So he's showing them what to do. And then he's giving them instructions for what to do. And how did he do it, do you think? Was he, uh, was he angry and rigid about it? Do you think he did it looking for recognition? That's how I am when I serve people, right? I want somebody to recognize that I've made a sacrifice. In fact, I might even say something to remind them about how I serve them if they didn't catch it the first time. I, I might, hey, is this, whose hair thingy is this? I found it when I was washing the dishes last night. Just want you to know that I found your hair thingy when I was doing the dishes. So if you want it, come and get it. So I didn't go down the drain when I was doing the dishes, right? You remind people that you were serving. I don't think Jesus was doing that. Do you think he was forceful and irritated about it? Do you think he had an attitude about it? I don't think so. I mean, how many of you have ever served someone, but when you were doing it, you had the absolute wrong attitude about it? Anybody? Anybody? Just me? Okay, no, good. Not just me. Uh, Like you knew you were doing it with a hard heart. Like I I knew you knew you were supposed to be serving someone. But something inside of you just didn't want to do it and you didn't feel right about it. I remember um, for years and years, we would go to my mom's house uh, for Christmas and for Christmas dinner. And uh, finally, as my mom got a little bit older and she got a little bit sicker and she wasn't able to make dinner, I decided that I would serve my family by hosting Christmas dinner at our house. And so at Thanksgiving, I invited my, all my sisters and their families and my mom and my stepdad. I said, hey, why don't you guys come up to our house for Christmas? We'll make dinner. It'll be great. And then the day of, when I'm making Christmas dinner, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about all the work we had to do to clean the house, all the work I had to do to make the dinner. And then I'm thinking about, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so are definitely going to get in an argument. We've got to make sure we keep them separated. And this person's only going to want to talk about these things. And I don't want to have any conversation with them. And we've got to put this person in that room over there so that they don't bother this other person. And I'm like, why am I even doing this? Like, why, why did I offer to do this? And so um, I did what I was very proud of myself for doing. What I did next was I went to pray. And I prayed and I said, Lord, would you please help all these people to have the right attitude today? Yeah, you guys are smarter than I am because <laughs> you already got it. And it's almost like the Lord said to me, Steve, you're going to set the tone for how this goes. And in that moment, like, it was like a switch flipped in my heart. And I realized, oh, yeah, I've got to have the right attitude first. I'm the one that's going to set the tone for this. And when people started arriving, I was joyful about it and I was cheerful about it. And even when some of those little conflicts came up, I was able to address them knowing that I was doing it out of service, not just for my family, but for Christ. And it really changed the way I looked at that. But Jesus, it says, Jesus loved them to the end. Verse one, it says, he loved them to the end, which tells me that he washed their feet with tenderness and with care because he loved them and he was getting ready to send them out to do the very same thing. And he wanted them to do it in the very same way that he did. Watch this. He continues in verse 15. He says, I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I think when he says, do as I have done for you, he's not just saying, do what I did for you, right? But he's saying, do what I did for you, how I did it for you. Do as I have done for you. And then he says, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So again, he reminds them of the relationship. He says, you are the servant. I'm the master. You're the messenger. I'm the one who's going to send you. 
They were going to be his messengers. Jesus saw very clearly what was happening in this moment. This was the last act of service he was going to leave them with, and then he was going to send them out to be messengers. And I can't help but think and wonder in this moment if Jesus, as he was washing their feet, was he thinking about these words that were written down by the prophet Isaiah about 700 years earlier. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You know this phrase, good news? The phrase that we use for that a lot of times is the phrase gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And Jesus is saying, I'm getting ready to send you out to share the good news or the gospel. And Isaiah 52, 7 says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel. I think in that moment, Jesus, their master and Lord was, yes, he was expressing his love for them in a very intimate way, but was also preparing them to carry out the mission to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to hear how Jesus entered this intera- ended this interaction in verse 17. He said this. He said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So it's like, it's as if it weren't enough that I'm, I'm giving you this example, I'm setting this as an example for you. I'm showing you how to do it. He goes, now I want you to go do the same. And when you do, you will be blessed if you do them. So l- let me ask you a question. What is the point of this story for us? as his disciples 2,000 years after this event. I mean, I think we can see what he's trying to teach the disciples in the room, right? He expressed his love for them by washing his feet. And then in verse 14, he said, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have done this, you should go do this for others as well. In verse 15, he said, I set an example for you that you should do as I have done. And now in verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what point is he wanting to drive home with us? As followers of Jesus, we're called to go wash people's feet. Well, not literally, of course. I mean, I don't think we wear shoes now. It's, it's a little different, right? It's not as culturally important. It's not as hygienically important. But the truth is there are people all around us that we could be serving. Right? Jesus calls us to serve the people in probably the most needed, most unexpected ways and in the most humble ways and in ways that fly in the face of our social and societal expectations. But then that thought always leads me to the next question, and the question is, um, okay, but whose feet am I supposed to wash? Which I don't think that's a bad question, but I've come to realize that I think it can lead us astray. That if we approach it that way, we're going to miss the point of this story, because I'm convinced that the point of the story isn't for us to ask, whose feet am I supposed to wash? So I want to encourage you that the point of the story, as Jesus says, do as I have done for you, that we don't ask whose feet we're supposed to wash, but we follow Jesus' example and go wash everyone else's feet. Do you see the difference between the two? If we only ask the question of who, then we are the ones choosing who we're going to serve. We're the ones choosing whose feet we're going to wash, and we tend to choose the people we like, the people that are our friends, the people who are our family, the people that we would serve anyway, even if we weren't trying to be like Jesus. And when we do that, we limit the work of Jesus in this world. This is not what Jesus modeled. This is not what he instructed them to do. Look again at his words. 
He says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. And then he said, I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. And Jesus washed all of their feet, not just Peter, who refused at first, not just John, who's writing this message down, but everyone in the room, including Judas, who Satan had already entered, who was going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The one that stabbed Jesus in the back is first having Jesus wash his feet in a loving and tender way, and he did it gladly. And I think this really significant detail highlights something really important about serving, and that's that serving isn't about what the other person deserves. You know, maybe sometimes you catch yourself thinking things like, I've made dinner for the last three nights. Let somebody else do it for a change. Or he didn't give me a ride to the airport. Why should I give him a ride to the airport? She never washes my kids. Why should I wash her kids? Uh, Let someone else serve in gen kids. Let someone else lead a connection group. Nobody's serving me. Let somebody else do it. (laughs) It's so easy to live that way, isn't it? It's so easy to live this transactional lifestyle, to keep score with our neighbors. Uh, I'll do for you as soon as you do for me. They brought us cookies last week. We can't forget to bring them a meal next week to keep score with our coworkers. Hey, if you cover for me on this project, I'll cover for you on this other one to keep score with our church, keep score with our kids. I said no three times in a row. I really need to say yes this time or else they're gonna think I don't love them anymore. Keep score with our spouse. But when we do that, when we have this transactional lifestyle, that's that's a social contract. That's not a relationship. Serving at its heart isn't really about what the other person deserves or how the other person will react. I mean, Jesus didn't serve his friends because they deserved it. Jesus served his friends because that's who he is. He is love. He came to serve, and he came to model serving for us. And he doesn't model it with specificity or exclusivity. I mean, his command included everyone else. He says again in verse 17, he says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed. That's the promise from scripture, right? God will bless you if you serve people. People will bless you as you serve people. People will listen to you. People will follow you as you serve people. You will have influence as you serve people. But, I choose to serve everyone, aren't people going to take advantage of me? Will will I get walked on sometimes? Yeah, maybe. But you know, one day, each of us is going to have to stand before the Lord. And I don't think he'll ever look at you and say, you were a great servant, but you were a sucker. People took so much advantage of you. You remember that one guy you helped out? He didn't need it. He was just using you. Remember that one time you gave her some money? She didn't need that. She was taking advantage of you. I don't think that he'll ever say that. I think instead he will look at you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've served well. Hey, do you know how you spot a good leader, by the way? He's the one with the dirty feet. You ever thought about this story and looked around and say, who's the person who didn't get their feet washed? (laughs) It was the leader. 
It was the host, right? It was the one who was setting the example. Who's the one guy in this scenario who didn't get his feet washed? The guest of honor. And so maybe if you want to be a better leader, if you want to be a better follower of Jesus, uh, you could start every day with this simple prayer. Just say, Lord, send me someone to serve today. If you pray that prayer, I promise the Lord will honor that prayer. I mean, this is the life Jesus models for us. Friends, I see way too many Christians and we're looking out for our own interests. We wanna have a voice in every area of society. We wanna have the loudest voice in the room and on every issue or the only voice in the room on every issue. Can I just lovingly suggest that that is not the way of Jesus? That, that we can get so caught up on being right that we forget to be Christ-like? I mean, he calls us to pattern our lives after him. And in a world where people spend so much time looking out for themselves, can you imagine the difference that serving a few people around us could make where we live, where we work, where we go to school, where we play? Now, I'm not talking about like these huge grand gestures that make the evening news, right? I mean, I'm saying that every day we have the opportunity to carry out simple, mundane acts of service that communicate the love of Jesus to others. I love how author Shane Claiborne said this. He said, everybody wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. You know, that we're energized maybe to a fault by these big, exciting acts of service that get the most attention. But I think what Jesus wants us to realize is that serving is a way of life, that sometimes that means giving ourselves to really big things, but most of the time it's, a, it's an every day, every moment, every encounter, every person kind of life. That's the life Jesus modeled for us. And that's the life he's called us to. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, even as I speak those words, I'm reminded that I'm not always following that pattern, the pattern that you set for us in Christ, the pattern that we should serve the people around us. God, I'm thankful that you've given us this story to remind us of how Jesus served his friends. And even those in the room who weren't going to follow him, Lord, that he did it because that's who he is. As we think about the places in our lives where we can serve people, God, would you just help us to find people who are in need of service? Would you help us to put aside our own desires, our own ways, our own uh, choices that we would make and to follow your leading when it comes to that. Lord, send us someone to serve today. Even today, as we leave this place, we go out into the world, we think about how we could make this world a better place. One simple way is just to go out and find someone to serve today. And so would you do that for us, Lord? Uh, we will trust you with that. We'll give you all the praise and all the glory for the results in Jesus' name.